0: and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your co-host Bridget Keyes.
1: And I'm your co-host T.J. West.
0: And we are talking about season two episode The Perfect Foil. T.J., take us to Mardi Gras and let us know what happens.
1: All right. So Jessica Fletcher, our beloved intrepid detective, is summoned to New Orleans to catch base with Cal Fletcher, her husband's extended cousin
0: i yeah try try telling us the actual relationship just go ahead
1: the exact nature of their relationship is somewhat ambiguous as it's revealed that he may be frank's uncle's nephew's i don't know whatever several times (laughs) removed anyway who apparently owns a home in new orleans that is being used as basically a gambling den and of course, Jessica arrives just in time for Mardi Gras, so the whole city is in absolute chaos. And during the course of the festivities where she arrives at Cal's house, a noted card shark gambler, I don't know, whatever he is, ends up killed. And so Jessica has to discover, figure out who it is because everyone seems to assume that it is Cal because Cal showed up in a Cyrano de Bergerac costume, and so everyone just assumes that he did it. But as, of course, is always the case, it's not him, it's someone else. And so we have to find out who that is. So what did you make of this episode, Bridget? Because I believe that you liked it more than I did.
0: I do. I like this episode a lot. I think it's fun. It's spooky. It's mysterious. You know, we spend a, a good 10 minutes, at least, in the throes of Mardi Gras, and everyone's costumed and masked, and nobody knows who anybody is. And I just think that's really fun.
1: That is fun. I really say that it is enjoyable to see this version of Mar- of New Orleans, as opposed to the earlier episode of New Orleans, which I believe when we talked about it said that it didn't feel very New Orleansy, like it just felt kind of generic. This is much more, I think, authentic to the spirit of New Orleans in the French Quarter in particular.
0: Well, yeah, although as someone who admittedly has never been there, I also wonder if it's just um, more authentic to our expectations of how New Orleans looks and is represented,
1: right? I mean, having been to New Orleans pre-Katrina, like it seemed, and I I wasn't there during Mardi Gras, but there is a distinct difference between... The French Quarter and the American Quarter. And they think of that.
0: Oh, sure. I wasn't disputing that. I just mean, like, I think TV, you know, always does Mardi, Mardi Gras in oh, New Orleans become, like, synonymous. And then, like, is this actually right. what the parties look like? I have no idea, you know. But it looks like all the other parties I've seen on TV set at Mardi Gras. So it's got that, right? <laughs> right. Right.
1: I mean, if my reading of Anne Rice is anything to go
0: by. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Arguably that's the standard. <laughs>
1: notable, that, hey, she was a, a fundamental part of New Orleans' life. I would say this is somewhat accurate.
0: I'm sure that we talked about this last time, but we also need to address that you say New Orleans and I say New Orleans.
1: I mean, it's Nolens, really. And,
0: and yeah, neither kid. of us says Nolans or so. Nouvelle-Orléans. Um, so there we go. <laughs> oh, get, get out of here. People can tweet with their rage at our pronunciation.
1: I mean, we're just regular citizens. Like, we're not going to, you know,
0: <laughs> we're not
1: New Orleans natives. So
0: I actually just I think the reason I like this is that um, the the masking and the costuming, you know, it's this fun case of like mistaken identity in terms mm-hmm. of how the murder was committed. And that's actually really obvious that that's what happened. Uh, right. It seems to take everyone a very long time to cotton on to that. But it's fun and it – there's a a Tommy and Tuppence episode that does something kind of similar, right, where it's like this masked ball – well, I said episode (laughs) because I haven't actually read the Tommy and Tuppence books (laughs) – just watched the old 80s tv series but um it's it's quite similar right it's a mass ball and there's a murder and it's mistaken identity based on who stole whose costume you know and Mm -hmm. tricked people into thinking they were a murderer and i think this one does that too so as you mentioned we think that we know cyrano de bergerac was the murderer and because cal was wearing the cyrano costume it's presumed that cal was the murderer but of course anyone could have taken his costume and his mask and that's indeed what happened I
1: w- yeah that was if I have one complaint about the episode like that's the most glaringly obvious possibility I was like did it not occur to literally anybody that you know it's a costume party so <laughs> so just because he has a stutter like someone can imitate a stutter that's yeah, the other sort of like smoking gun is that the Sierra de Bergerac had Cal's signature stutter which seemed which by the way the stutter doesn't always appear so that doesn't make any sense but I digress so, but it's also like literally anyone who knows Cal could imitate the stutter it's not like mm-hmm. it's not as if like you can't stutter if you don't.
0: Yeah, have it if naturally. you don't, if you don't have an actual speech problem, you you can you can fake stuttering. It's not like something you can't fake. Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that so if you just, wanted people to think it was Cal, that would be the obvious thing to do, right? Is to right. all of a sudden stammer a lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it seems rather obvious, and <laughs> to those of us in the audience.
0: Yes. Yeah, and so of course the the main clue then becomes that um, our Cyrano. Our murdering Cyrano is left-handed, and Cal is not. Mm-hmm. And Jessica is able to figure out the guy who did it because he's also left-handed.
1: Right? Who is, of course, the character's name is Gilbert Gaston, which is a very great, it's the best name. name. It is a very good name, not just because it's a later Beauty and the
0: Beast. Obvious, you know. No, I wasn't thinking about connection. that. It just sounds very like French Quarter, doesn't it?
1: It does. Yes, and I, I, I appreciate, and I also, I mean, like the character. There's not a lot of depth to this murderer, but I appreciate his screen presence anyway
0: yeah well he's sort of um he's one of johnny blaze our murder victim the guy who runs the gambling den he's one of his cohorts Mm -hmm. uh, and he has kind of a sort of seedy seedy you know bad guy vibe um and he's having an affair with johnny's girlfriend kitty and so ultimately that's why he killed johnny because johnny had found out about them and had physically assaulted kitty which the episode like makes complete light of which is sort of horrifying
1: mm.
0: uh and he says multiple times he says he would have killed us both so we have right. this sense that like johnny would have been in such a jealous rage over their relationship that he would have murdered them both and so that's why gilbert killed him framing cal who they all pretend is their friend which is sort of awful like they're just totally willing to let cal go to the gallows yes like really it's really bad messed up. <laughs> It's also
1: very noirish. Like, I know I, you know, I invoke noir a lot, but this is one of those episodes I think that has that just ever so faint whiff of, you know, poisonous, toxic noirness because of the the you know the gangsters mall thing and the, you know uh-huh. the, the assistant who's having an affair with the with the mall and like you know, that all of that is very you know a noirish convention yeah so I, well, I and, like and that then we part have of it.
0: like the setting right this sort of like right. s- the seedy underside of the city and because Mardi Gras mm-hmm. is going on all these crimes can be committed because no one's looking right and the the other interesting characters that we have is um, participating in the gambling done is a senator who right. wants to run for the White House or maybe he doesn't really but his wife is pushing him and she's her ca- her costume is Lady Macbeth right which is like mm-hmm. very you know clever parallel uh, uh-huh. and he owes money he had signed IOUs and if it gets out that he signed IOUs then he'll lose his job presumably and won't be able to run for the White House so I again like playing into that sort of Morally ambiguous universe, right? Mm hmm. So, speaking of the the congressman's wife, um, <laughs> I have to say that I love
1: Barbara Babcock Me too. I, I think she is just divinely well cast in this role. I know her obviously as Charmaine Hollingsworth from The Golden Girls, Blanche's like very successful novelist sister. Oh, but what about Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman? But I was going to say she's also obviously in Dr. Quinn. And I just love the steely, really badass way that she. Sorry, Mr. Keyes, way that she depicts this character. Like, (laughs) I just think that, you know, maybe Macbeth is an appropriate intertext for her just because she's, you know, ruthlessly, steely ambitious. Like, she has this real hardness to the portrayal that I think is really, you know, spot on.
0: Mm -hmm. It's also evocative of Lansbury's character in the Manchurian Candidate, right? It is, yes. The the pushy wife who wants her husband to take it all.
1: Um, Right. And her husband's kind of you know mi- not milk toast, but not particularly like compelling. But no,
0: he's you know, just sort of like okay, all right, run for the White House, whatever.
1: Right, and of course, this plot is even not even germane to the murder, but it's so compelling just because of Babcock's performance. Like she yeah. elevates it to like the more interesting part of this episode just because she's so great. <laughs>
0: I think what was also really interesting about this episode to me is that it um, it it assumes a lot of intelligence and deep cultural referencing on the part of the audience So, like the fact that she's in the lady macbeth costume um jessica makes mention of it once but nobody ever outright says she's in a lady macbeth costume and the character she's playing is basically like lady macbeth and then if she's lady macbeth then we might also assume that she's a murderer or that she helped her husband commit murder right like that's what the writers want you to be thinking of, right? They want you Mm -hmm. to have all of that sort of inner text and all of those illusions in your head. And I really appreciate that. I just appreciate the intelligence behind that, you know? And I think the Cyrano costume is the same thing. You know, Cyrano famously gives Mm -hmm. voice to another character who can't express his love for Roxanne. And here we have someone giving voice as if they're Cal, right? So there's like parallels there. We have um, the police lieutenant actually comes to the party and plays Cardinal Richelieu, so you know another figure in French history who's, you know, vying for power and having you know this sort of outside of the monarchy having all of this power, which is what a police lieutenant does. So I think I just I thought it was so clever, and I I appreciate how much they expect of us in this episode. Mm
1: that is something i did not really appreciate but having talking like i feel like that's very true i love the literary intertextuality of this episode now that you mention it and that i think that you know that's what's so clever about the use of mardi gras Uh, aside from the fact that mardi gras is obviously about like inverting traditional orders and like the the play and the burlesque and all that sort of thing so i think that you're right that there is an interesting like mixing of literary tastes here
0: I also think it's fun when JB, you know, speaking of the burlesque of it all, um, when JB arrives and she's booked a hotel for the wrong night, and it's the last night of Mardi Gras, so there are no hotel rooms for her, and she's, you know, desperately bouncing around the city trying to figure out where to go, and she goes to this address. To teach a trivia question for you. Do you remember what the address was?
1: Oh, it's uh, it's right on the tip of my tongue, but I it's Lafitte, right? No.
0: Yes, number seven Lafitte Lane. And she's – when she's at the party, you know, and she's asking everyone, do you know – have you seen Cal Fletcher? Have you seen Cal Fletcher? And most people are, like, totally ignoring her because they're drunk and they're partying and they're throwing confetti. Um, but there's that group from New Jersey who's like, hey, 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 you need to be in costume, you know, and they give her a mask and they throw a shawl over her. And so I I just really love that. I love that sort of frenetic energy of, like, she just wants to know where she's going to sleep tonight. Mm-hmm um and everyone is it's like mad chaos but they're like also if you're gonna be here asking about cal you're gonna have to do it in costume or nobody's gonna talk to you it's also anxiety
1: provoking to be like
0: it's very to amazed. be like
1: stranded. i mean i'm just not one of those people who could ever just go to a strange city and then just like land on my feet like i would be i'm just the country boy in me is just like oh my god how could you know <laughs> like what would you do in that circumstance
0: yeah and it's like a packed house too. It's like it's chaos, and she gives her. I what 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 creates the most anxiety for me is that she gives her bag to somebody. Yes, and he just takes it away, and I'm like, wait, we don't know who that guy is. We don't know where your stuff is going. Like, what are you doing? Oh, Jessica Fletcher, you can take the you can take the girl
1: out of Cabot Cove, but you can't take Cabot Cove out of the girl.
0: But it all works out. It is Cal's house that he's renting out to Johnny Blaze, our murder victim, and Cal is sleeping in the back shed, and she finds him. So it all works out. Right.
1: So you mentioned earlier the lieutenant, uh, whose name is also similarly delightful, Edmund Cavett. Like, it feels very, like... Oh, how, I love that. It feels, like, very Les Mis. Like Like, you know, it feels very Les Mis <laughs> Yes, yes. I wonder if that's deliberate. Well,
0: and he's also, he's played by... Cesare de Nova. So we have this like wonderful Italian actor playing this like devastatingly charming Frenchman. Oh, I, I know. Love it. And
1: I loved this character for so many reasons. You know, usually the police detectives are, well, it varies. Like sometimes they're, you know, really charismatic and there's an obvious bond with Jessica. Other times they're just, you know, kind of throwaways. This is one of the ones that really stands out to me. Like when I think nowadays, from now on, when I think of like great detectives In Murder, She Wrote Universe, this is the one I'm going to sort of hold up as the gold standard. Because as you say, partially it's because he's just so charming and he has this rich and mellifluous male voice. And he's also a really complex character in his own right with a very complex backstory. And so I think that there's a lot of work that goes into this character that makes him really stand out.
0: Well, his backstory, of course, is that, among other things, his son was murdered in the alley behind Cal's house. And so one of the reasons he's at the party is to investigate what happened to his son. Why was he involved with Johnny Blaze and these gamblers and who killed him? Because he doesn't know who's committed his son's murder. And so, of course, he becomes one of the suspects as well
1: right and you know he's has good reason to believe that it was johnny who was responsible and you know yeah. in, in there's that moment when he's sitting at dinner with jessica and he's you know or at some point he's saying to jessica you know i don't know why my son was there was like some sort of childish lark and i mean there's just so much like anguish and like deep mm-hmm. pain in the way that denova delivers the line that you really do believe that this is a father struggling with you know Very deep grief over the death of his son. Like, that's a real testament to this episode, the strength of this episode's writing and DeNova's performance that it can allow this to have that kind of depth that we don't always associate with like a weekly TV show or a weekly, you know, case of the week kind of TV show. And so I think that that's a real remarkable moment.
0: I think it's also just, um, it's time for Jessica to have someone flirting with her again. It's been a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he is so gracious about it and he's he's just he's so charming and handsome and like mm-hmm. just he feels like the character we've known. I think he's just well written and well acted in that way. And so when he kisses Jessica's hand, of course that's the moment she realizes that he was in the Richelieu costume
1: because mm-hmm. it's the same
0: pinky ring and it's the same gesture of kissing her hand that happened at the party. But it also is just like this delightful moment where you see these two older adults um they're sort of older than everyone else involved in this and they're you know just very different culturally than everyone else involved in this and you -hmm. just see them connecting for that reason it's just it's so nice i love that and i um he says i wasn't involved and she believes him and she never exposes him you know, in the big reveal of who who did it, which is very Agatha Christie style. They assemble everyone and do a reenactment. Uh-huh. And they just say the guy who played card- the cardinal. And we never say who he was. And we just take it on faith that we know he wasn't the murderer. And I thought it was really right. lovely the way Jessica just, like, respected this sort of friendship they would cultivated in that way.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I like even, like, from the moment that they meet, it's clear that Kevett has... In, you know, in distinction to many other detectives, immediately says to Jessica, it's an honor and a privilege to have someone with your, I don't remember exactly, your powers of observation. Observation. Your, you know. mm-hmm. And she's he's like, it's such an honor to have you here, you know, helping with this, which is, you know, so very lovely. As opposed to some of those other people who are like, what are you doing here like why would you why would we need your help
0: yeah because the other sometimes the police are like well you're a novelist and that's really different than what we do which it is but this guy likes her books and he is really passionate he's he says he's passionate about crime mm,
1: yes right because he says that it's not just my because it's not just my profession it's also my enjoyment like
0: yes he- but it's nice to see that he recognizes she's not just like some mass market novelist like she's a very intelligent woman that's what enables her to write mm-hmm. the books and that intelligence she can bring to a real life investigation. Right. So they should run away and get married yeah. together, as I think where I, we're going with this. Yeah, I would love to see a,
1: you know, a bit of fan fiction where Jessica comes back to New Orleans, you know, or he comes <laughs> to Cabot Cove, you know, and little... I
0: know why didn't they ever do a follow up episode where he came to Cabot Cove to visit? That would have been yeah, really it would have been nice. nice to have that
1: sort of old world charm and you know the the small parochial world
0: of Cabot Cove. Can you imagine? Seth would be like, "Oh my God, barf! What is oh, this yeah, guy? He would... Like, he's such a phony." His the
1: the green eyed monster of queer jealousy would have reared
0: its head. <laughs> okay, so Cal Fletcher,
1: right? What do we think about how Cal Fletcher?
0: Well, he's played by the guy who plays Jerry the dentist from Bob Newhart show. Mm, I knew I recognized him from something. I feel like he's um, at first. I'm like, aren't we just kind of doing Grady? Mm. Right? Like, this sort of bumbling guy who stumbles into stuff that's way over his head, you know? Um, but but it's not, actually, because he's, like, a total, like, liar. He's, like, a pathological liar. Uh, the lies just sort of roll off his tongue. And um, I just, am like, Jessica, this guy is, like, your 47th cousin twice removed on your husband's side. Like, you do not owe this guy anything. I and mean, she's only come to town to check on him because his aunt, Mildred, who apparently she does talk to, hadn't heard from him in a while. But, like, she owes these people nothing. And for most of the episode, right. you know, she's just, like, looking out for him when he gets into this mess. And I'm like, just leave town, lady. You don't have to deal with this. And then she does have a breaking point that I appreciated where she's like, why is everyone calling him my cousin? He's not even my cousin. Right. And I was like, yeah, you tell him, sister. You don't need to be dealing with this.
1: And I will say that, you know, his stammer is one of the sort of, like, his key personality traits. But as I said earlier, like, it doesn't really follow through the whole episode. Like, he seems surprisingly, like, stammer-free for, like...
0: Well, but that's how stutters work, though. Sure. They manifest when you're more anxious. I guess, yeah. Less so when you're more comfortable and confident.
1: That's true. I guess I was just thinking, you know, if you're... In terms of, like, continuity. Like, if, you know, there's no other Mm -hmm. moment. There's no other moment when it really emerges. I guess I guess they just needed it to have the setup in the early card game and then it comes out at the they use that as the they use that as the the, the, the narrative crutch whenever it comes to the the party.
0: I he's suppose. so dumb and then he's like you know, he's supposed to be like a nerd, like he mounts insects to sell to museums for a living or something and it's like okay, buddy. He's and a he naturalist. lies to his aunt and says he's like traveling to Amazon because he doesn't want her to know that he's like helping it's someone so, run a gambling gun out of his house.
1: And then to top it all off, the episode ends with the revelation that now, switching from being a gambling den, he's now renting it out to a a madam to make it into a house of ill repute. And it's like, I mean, first of all, I'm amazed that it's made it by the censors. Like, it's one of those things I'm like, whoa, like he's talking about prostitutes.
0: I know. I actually, um, I think the joke doesn't quite work as well as they want it to because they, he says, like, I think she's going to run some kind of escort service. And, like, that word is already a trigger. It's, like, a synonym for prostitution. So I think, like, if he's supposed to be so ignorant to what this house is being used for, it kind of didn't work. But it's funny that he's, like, so dumb that that's what – now that's how he's going to rent out the house. And Jessica and Kevett look at each other and are like, oh, my God.
1: And then Kevett's like, I'll have a talk with him. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we do get, like, the cutesy murder she wrote happy ending with this episode. I mean, assuming right, that about like-
1: prostitution, no like <laughs> – yeah. I guess we could say sex work but you know it's like I, like I said I was just kind of like whoa that's a very it's a very risque kind of thing to see well on it's Murder New Shiro. Orleans you know uh, well that's well that's true I suppose they have a little more uh, laxity I suppose yeah
0: <laughs> the other thing I want to talk about is can we talk about the scene where they're all gathered and we do the the Poirot style like gather up the suspects and let's talk about who did it moment uh-huh because it's, um, I love that. I love those moments in Murder Mysteries, but like mm-hmm. it's so silly. Like this one, it just keeps going because Jessica takes her time and everyone's like, Can you get to the point? And she's like, If you'll just be patient another minute.
1: Especially Cavette. Cavette is really being like leaning into the.
0: The pantom- oh, I thought he was faking. I figured she'd already told him everything, oh, and that was staged for right. the other suspect. No, that's what I meant
1: is that he's like really leaning into the pantomime of it all. he's just sort mm. of like, you know, I'm gonna give it my all.
0: And it, but the this sort of impatience of everyone and her like just being really slow to explain things sort of annoying. Um, and then she has people like reenact stuff. So the senator puts on the Cyrano costume to prove mm-hmm. that anyone could have worn the costume, which is kind of the point of a costume i didn't really think we needed to prove that um but you know it also sort of shows the senator is like kind of a good a decent guy right Uh uh-huh. um yeah
1: which is kind of surprising yeah concerned.
0: i was surprised by that too yeah but but it's like i guess my my issue is um the whole point of this reenactment was someone else could have worn the costume and in fact that person was left-handed because we all saw him use his left hand Mm-hmm. And that person hid the key to the office in a pocket. And so when Gilbert goes to the costume and grabs the key out of the pocket, oh, it must have been Gilbert. We She could have just told them that and saved like half an hour of these people's lives where they're all like, <laughs> can you just get to the point? Now, if you just be patient, just another minute, just another minute. So she could yeah. have just told them that. In fact, in many episodes, she does just tell them that. Right. So what was the point of this whole big reenactment? <laughs>
1: I guess they needed to fill up that 43-minute <laughs> time slot, right? I'm only half joking. But I also, I mean, while I found Gilbert's, like, explanation convincing in itself, as sometimes tends to be the case with these kinds of episodes because of all the other moving pieces and narrative threads, I didn't find that it landed particularly effectively. Like, I didn't feel like it was really emotional. Like, it maybe it doesn't need to be, but I was just uh-huh. like, well... You know, it is kind of a tragedy. I'm thinking of the earlier episode with like the music, like I can't remember the episode title, the with the musician who's who's killed and all in that the stuff. The other like, New
0: Orleans episode. Yeah, the other New like murder to a jazz beat. That's it. And it
1: similarly had that sort of understated re- revelation at the end. Similarly, in this case, it's mm-hmm. like, well, this could have actually been quite tragic in a, in a nice, evocative way. But as it is, it's just kind of, you know. To be to give Robert Forster, who plays Gilbert, the credit, he's like the weight of when he's like he would have killed us, like that. It feels weighty, but it's not justified by the way the narrative we've been given.
0: I think I understand your parallel because one of our complaints about Murder to a Jazz Beat is that Glenn Turman's character didn't seem totally evil, and then the we're sort of told we're never shown. That he's actually this really horrible guy who's, like, trying to kill his wife. He was, like, really awful smuggling drugs. And I think similarly, like, we don't – we don't really see that much evidence that Johnny is bad. Like, he runs a gambling den, but that doesn't inherently make him, like, a horrible person. Um, Although we do see Kitty with bruises and, and cuts on her face after she's been alone with him. So the episode does tell us he physically assaults her, which is horrible. Um, But it's really just Gilbert saying, he would have killed us. I did what I had to do. I didn't have a choice. And so we have to sort of take it on faith that he is, that Johnny was such a horrible person.
1: Right. And I think that part of what this is, the problem here is that it's, because the episode is premised on a, a, you know, sort of surfeit of suspects, it needs to take its time to show us all of these people and why they might've done it. But the the cost of that is that the actual person who did it doesn't get as much development, sure as as would make it actually like feel substantive.
0: Yeah, well, and the victim doesn't get um, much substance either. Yeah,
1: exactly. Just so bad the, guy, right? So the pleasures of the episode lie elsewhere in the the the, the romance between uh, JB and and Cavet um, and you know cops. Lady Macbeth character, like the, well, or even Cal, Cal, Cal's goofiness. Cal's being, yeah, his goofiness. So that's where the the episode's pleasures arise rather than the actual murder. Yeah. Itself. <laughs> the supposed motivator for the plot.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But that's okay. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm willing to go along for the ride, you know, and, and enjoy these other elements, even if the murder itself is not particularly compelling.
0: I think for me, the other uh, interesting thing is like wondering, how Cal got involved in this world, because he's such a doofusy, presumably nice guy, although also like a sort of a pathological liar. Right. Um, And so it's only because he inherited this house, and he figured out that he could rent it and make a lot of money. Uh, and he just happened to rent it to them that he becomes involved with that he's, you know, friends with Kitty and Johnny and Gilbert Gaston in the first place. And they do sort of treat him as a friend. Do you think that I guess I was expecting a sort of Mm Grady kind of relationship where they're like, oh, God, Cal. But they do actually sort of treat him as a friend, except like they're completely willing to sacrifice him to get away with murder.
1: And drug him so that he's asleep during the whole
0: thing. Right. Because that's how they took his costume, right? They drugged him uh, so that they could masquerade as him.
1: Yeah, this is the second episode. So they really
0: just used the hell out of this poor guy. Yep.
1: So, and we have the second episode in a row where someone is drugged and left unconscious.
0: Maybe the writers need to quit doing that.
1: Yeah. It's very. I'm still not
0: over our argument about whether Harry McGraw should have done that to Jessica. So I I really would appreciate the writers to stop using that trope.
1: Oh yeah. I forgot about. Oh my. Yeah. That is. It becomes more evident when you start watching them and paying attention with each episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess it just, it's like. On the one hand I'm like, how did you get involved with such horrible people? But and surprisingly, they um they seem like quite friendly to you in a way I didn't expect, but then also like, that's because they're just using the hell out of you. And they're like totally willing to let you like go to jail for the rest of your life. He's their landlord. Can you imagine treating your landlord that way? Those of us who've spent time renting, which is a statistically very high percentage of us. Can you imagine doing that to your No, landlord? I can't really imagine framing someone for murder. I can't imagine framing anyone for murder but like just the idea that you would take advantage of the landlord like because we think of the landlord as the person having all of the power right, right. that's the, the the power dynamic is really backwards in this right and
1: i mean well, well the one last thing i just wanted to mention was that this is, episode also relies on the you said something that could only the murderer could only have known yes. trope within murder she Wrote because it's revealed that gilbert said, like because at one key moment gilbert says to jessica he's your if he's your cousin you should go help him but he, the only person who knew that he, Cal was her cousin was the ser- person in the Cyrano costume, which obviously wasn't yes, Cal himself.
0: Because so. at the party, Jessica just asked everyone, "Do you know where Cal is?" Right, and he and the She pers- only said, "It's me. I'm your cousin." To the person in the Cyrano costume, because she thought it was Cal. Yeah. So if Gilbert said, "Go help your cousin," then Gilbert must have been in the Cyrano costume. Right.
1: Although, of course, he could have, I suppose, overheard it. Like, you know, it was a party and she was yelling, but even so. Or it
0: could have come out later when they're all standing around looking at the dead body and they're like, who's this rando lady? Right. Oh, that's Cal's cousin. Right. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, though, Teach, I do appreciate that for once we have a murderer kind of push back. Yeah. Kind of loose evidence that's compiled against him. Like, he's like, lots of people are left-handed. Yep. Doesn't mean I'm a murderer, you know. And I, I actually did appreciate that because I feel like often they're too quick to be like, "Oh, you got me." Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Here I am. I'm just going to confess every, little everything on the basis of nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, do you do you, um? Do you think the you said something only a murderer would have known? Trope is what 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 uh, you brought it up. Was your point to?
1: Oh, I mean, I just, I mean, it's not, it's not got to that point where it's sort of like the only thing that Murder, Shigeru has in its toolbox. It's just, you can start to see the signs already that that's going to be one of the recurring. A
0: very tired gotcha ones over the course yes. of 12 seasons. Yeah.
1: Yeah, As i watch watched some of the later episodes in particular, I'm like, okay, what, what's the thing? Like, what's the, what's the slip up that's going to ensnare this particular murderer? Yeah.
0: We also get the great, um, zoom in on the clock in this, which the series has done a bunch of times now and then it didn't really go anywhere we zoom in at 10 o'clock we zoom out they come out of the place it's 1030 and so you think oh the timing of the murder is going to be really important and actually it never really came up at all yeah it's an interesting bit of cinematography on somebody's part yeah yeah. but I liked that because that's also like classic murder she wrote like make sure the audience knows the time
1: yep we have to make. we have to know where we are in temporality (laughs) The Temporal Dimension of Murder, She Wrote. There's a scholarly article for you.
0: <laughs> so have you um, come to like this episode more now that we've talked about it?
1: I have. And I I think that talking about the literary intertextuality was the key. Like that's, and I think that will help me appreciate this episode more than I did at the outset.
0: Of course, it would be like the most snobby aspect of the, <laughs> the episode that would make you <laughs> like it.
1: Yep. Well, that and Barbara Babcock, which I like to start with, but it's the literary part that really cements it for me.
0: You know, the other thing we haven't said about Barbara Babcock's character in this is that um, we've compared her to outside texts, but the last time we saw her, she was the one running for Senate.
1: Oh, that's right. And she
0: was thwarted because people found out her secret about having an abortion. Um, And so I just thought it was interesting that she's brought back now to play – the wife of someone whose secret might threaten their political ambitions. There's a kind of interesting connection there.
1: Yeah. I had, I had forgotten about that. So that's a good point too.
0: That was tough guys. Don't die. It was our first Harry Mm -hmm. McGraw episode. Yep. And she'll be back. She'll be back a lot.
1: Oh yeah. Five episodes, right?
0: I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, for the Cabot Coke is that I am TJ West.
0: And I'm Bridget. Did I really put on makeup to do an audio recording keys?
1: And I still have my Cabot Cove background in my Zoom, but you all can't see that. But just so you know, it's there.
0: (laughs) Neither of us understands how podcasts works. And we'll see you next week. Bye. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Our theme
1: song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.